0: 2nd Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians chapter 1, let's read the first 11 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. In reading these first 11 verses of the book of 2 Corinthians, you're gonna find yourself in in one of three places. For many, they read this, or they hear this, and it makes no sense to them. It doesn't register with them, it seems to be completely irrelevant. To hear of this suffering for Christ, to hear of this persecution, there will be some, maybe even here today, And they feel as though this doesn't pertain to them at all. It's just way out there. Why in the world is God talking about this suffering and the comfort that comes from him in this suffering? Then there will be those, and I believe there are many of us here, who we do see what God is saying. We do understand it to some extent when he speaks of suffering for him and when he speaks of receiving comfort from him. We do get it somewhat, although I know that it doesn't register completely with us because we haven't experienced it, most of us, in the way that Paul had or the way that Timothy had. This is where I see myself in this second place where I'm seeing, but I'm struggling to see more. God gave us these truths about suffering for him and about comfort that comes through him. Now, why did he give us something that seems to be out of our grasp? Why did he give us something that seems as though it doesn't pertain to us right now? We're just understanding bits and pieces of it. You know that during Jesus's earthly ministry, he often didn't teach his disciples right where they were at that time, right in what they were experiencing. He often did, he was teaching them for what they would experience, correct? And oftentimes they didn't understand At all, or they only understood partially what Jesus was saying. Why does the word of God do this for us? It's because God is getting us ready. He's preparing us for what he knows our future is. We don't know what our future is. We like to turn the other way and pretend like it's not there. But God is preparing us even now for what is to come in the coming months and the coming years. As Christians, He's getting us ready, and even though we don't fully get it, we can understand and start to understand what He is speaking to us. Now, there's a third group of people, and those people fully understand what it means to suffer persecution for Christ severe persecution, even persecution unto death. It's spoken of here, is it not? A death sentence. That's another reason that God put this in the Bible. He's providing strength and perspective and wisdom for those who are putting their lives on the line because they believe in Jesus. That might be foreign to you this morning, completely. Or it might be sort of a thought to you. But there are those, there are millions of people around this world today who are suffering for the sake of Christ. They're suffering for righteousness sake. It is a current reality for many, many Christians in North Korea, in India, in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in Morocco. These are some statistics from Open Doors Ministries from 2001. Each month, on average, over 400 Christians worldwide were killed because of their faith. 372 churches or church buildings were attacked on average per month. The average 370 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned and another 150 are abducted. So these scriptures are a reality today for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray for them as though we were chained with them. Let's give. Let's provide when we can, when we know that there's an opportunity, when the opportunity arises. Let's consider some truths for our lives out of this passage. Number one, bridge believers in truth. When you look at the introduction of this book, the first few verses, yes, it's a greeting, and yes, it is written to a church that Paul and Timothy knew very well. But I see that, Paul is desiring to bridge believers in the truth. First of all, what what truth does he present from the start? That he is an apostle. That's an important truth. After all, if Paul, and he is claiming to be an apostle, and he's not an apostle, why would we listen to him? Why would we read his letter? Why would we heed his teaching? If he's a phony, if he really isn't a sent one, if he really isn't an apostle then wouldn't we just discard this? He is seeking in this introduction to bring believers together in the truth. His apostleship is important. Paul had a lot of critics. This church in Corinth criticized him. Even in this book, as we study and read, they criticized his appearance. It's always nice when you're a preacher and people say that you're ugly. They have to look at you a lot and they say something afterwards to you like, that's a... That's, that shirt is not very flattering. You're like, thank you. A hundred people have just been looking at me for the last 45 minutes, and now I know that I looked ugly. They criticized his appearance. You think, well, that's pointless. Then they criticized his manner of speech, saying, well, he's a good writer. His, later, his letters are very weighty and meaty, but when you see him in person, he's just not that dynamic, and he's not that cute. They were very critical. They were a critical people. At one point... Paul insinuates that some in Corinth even said that he was out of his mind, that he was crazy. And Paul says, yeah, I'm a little crazy for Christ. I am a little foolish, but only a fool for Christ. So he's up against this church that's skeptical, that's critical, that's accusatory. And look, he's bridging believers. He's binding believers together in the truth, believing that he is indeed an apostle sent out by Jesus to do his work. What other truth is he using here to bind believers together in? I see he's bringing Timothy into the picture. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. Timothy's calling. Timothy was a solid pastor, a solid teacher. And since the Corinthians were known for being critical, it stands to reason that they would have also been critical of Paul's son in the faith, because that's what Scripture calls Timothy. Well, we don't think much of Paul... Now we really don't think much of Timothy either. So Paul brings up Timothy right from the beginning. We know from the end of 1 Corinthians that Timothy visited Corinth. And I don't imagine that his reception was the smoothest or that it was the best meeting between them. So I look how he's writing. Did you notice the pronouns? Paul makes the point that he's writing with Timothy. Did you see that there was a lot of we and our and us in what Paul wrote in these first 11 verses, not just I and me. So it's vital that they accept this faithful servant, Timothy. So Paul is bridging believers in truth through his apostleship and through confirming the ministry that God is doing through Timothy. Now look at verse two, because he continues to bridge believers together, doesn't he? And what does he put there? It's such a great greeting. Don't skip right over it. Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God is what he says. Quite often when we're reading an epistle, we go over the grace and the peace kind of the same way that we would just skip right over the salutation of a letter. Now, I realize we don't use the term dear very much when it comes to a letter. If I would write I don't, when I text Michelle, I don't say, dear Michelle. <laughs> I do use emojis sometimes. But I usually don't say that. When we're writing, when we're messaging each other, we don't have the dear at the beginning, the way that we often did. And you know, when letters were written more often, when somebody said dear to you, that, that meant something. Because it means, you're precious to me. You're my love. You're, you're on my heart. Now we just see it as standard. So look at this salutation. It's even better than dear Corinthians. He says, grace and peace to you. The grace of God. He is pointing out why we're saved. You and I do not deserve God's love. We don't deserve his favor and we don't deserve his forgiveness. Yet he provided it to us by giving his only son to die on a cross. That is a great grace. Today, you and I are here in fellowship. I hope you're in fellowship with God this morning. You're in fellowship with God because he gave his only son on your behalf. You and I are sinners, doomed by our sin, condemned by our sin. But he gave Jesus Jesus that if we would believe in him as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we could trade in hell for heaven, that we could trade in separation for relationship, that we could walk in grace. Do you know that grace this morning? It's right there at the very beginning. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. If you're saved today, if you're headed for heaven, the only way you're headed for heaven is because of God's grace. And listen to this, now that we're saved, he grows us in grace, doesn't he? Even from grace to grace. So what a wonderful greeting. Today is the day to receive the grace of God, not tomorrow. And then he says, peace. Because you and I have received the grace of God, we have peace with God. And we can even have practical peace in this world of turmoil. This Society, this world, this culture is in chaos. It's falling apart. You see that. Very difficult to have peace in the middle of such a struggle, of such turmoil. Lives are broken all around us. Yet in Christ, even though our circumstances may not be good, we can have peace. Now, do we always have practical peace? We don't, because sometimes we worry. Sometimes we get anxious. Sometimes we're even despairing. But today, if you have received the grace of God, then you have access to peace. What a great introduction. What a great greeting. What a wonderful salutation that you and I, believers, stand together in God's grace and in God's peace. It comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord Bridging believers in truth, the truth of his apostleship, the truth of Timothy's calling, the truth of this grace and this peace. Now, there are a lot of truths in the word of God that bind us together. Every single truth that is here in the word is presented to us so that we might walk in it and so that it might unite us to glorify God in our lives. But what does the church often do in America today? We love our preferences when God has very little to do with those. The way we decide whether we're gonna be bound together with believers, many times is based on our likes and dislikes, not on the truths of scripture. Let's realize that to be like that is to be off course. These truths that he has given to us, and there are many more, are not for us to compromise. They're not for us to say, well, that's not that important of a truth. If it's in God's word, is it not important enough for us to receive? Is it not important enough for us to stand in that truth and to come together in that truth? There is a really fake unity. This ecumenical, warm and fuzzy, let's not talk about the truths of Scripture sort of fake unity. Beware of that. That's not the kind of unity that Paul is promoting here. But it is bringing believers together in the truth. Bridging the gap between us by bringing us together in the solid principles of God's word. So bridge believers with the truth. Number two, bless God with your life. Isn't that right there in verse three? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We get to verse three, and by that time, Paul and Timothy are already blessing God. They're worshiping him. They're exalting him. That's what blessing is, isn't it? They're seeking to Give the Lord what he is looking for in their lives. With all that Paul and Timothy need to say to the church in Corinth, they don't think that blessing God is an automatic assumption, do they? Being a blessing to God is what our lives should be about. Ask the question of yourself. Am I blessing God? Not, is God blessing me? Because If you're paying attention, God has blessed you beyond measure. The question isn't, has God blessed me? The question is, am I blessing him in the way that I live my life, in the way that I spend my time? In my thoughts, do I bless the Lord? With my lips, do I bless the Lord? Am I a delight to him? Or has my life become about blessing myself? These would be great questions for me to ask Eddie every single day. This Eddie, is my life, has it become about blessing myself? Or am I seeking to delight the Lord? Am I seeking to be a pleasing child upon his knee? Just looking to put a smile on his face with the attention of my life, with the affections of my life. Now I want you to consider who is writing this blessing to God. How about their circumstances? Are they blessing God because of their circumstances? Look at verse 8, despairing even of life. Look at verse 9, there's a death sentence hanging over them. This chapter, this beginning, is a lot about persecution, isn't it? So we have men who are enduring persecution. We have men who are suffering for the sake of Christ, and they're worshiping. Job said this, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So in the middle of his trial, he is blessing God. We are not to just bless the Lord when it's a sunny day outside, we're healthy, our relationships are good, and there's some money in the bank. The word says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth, not just when my circumstances are good. Bless the Lord at all times. This is the principle that we learn here, isn't it? Because isn't it true that when we bless in our good circumstance, sometimes it's hard to decide whether we're just thanking God for the good circumstances or we're really pressing in to tell God and to show God that we want to please him with our lives. This same Paul who wrote this letter by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sat in prison after he had been beaten with rods. And he praised the Lord with a song, even at midnight. He and Silas praised the Lord that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. Do you see why I'm saying that? I kind of understand this, but I really don't get it. I don't know what it's like to be sitting in jail because I believe in Jesus I don't know what it's like to be beaten up, because I insist upon proclaiming His word. But Paul did, and he is blessing the Lord. So, point number two: bless God with your life. Are you a blesser of God? Are you blessing Him just with your lips? I hear this weird stuff on the radio. It says, "Get your worship on." I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Get your worship on. It's, uh, it's like we we like to sing. At least some of us do. And we think that blessing is all about singing. It is about opening up our lips and proclaiming to the Lord that we love him and that we seek to be a delight to him. But it's our lives lived in a way that's a blessing to him. The more you draw near to him and his word, the more you'll see that you're called to be a blesser of God, your words and your works. Point number three, embrace suffering for Christ. Topics just keep getting more and more profound because I I know what it means to embrace and, and I know what suffering is, but to actually embrace, that means accept that my life as a Christian includes suffering for Jesus. Look at these 11 verses. Isn't there a theme there? Suffering for Christ and being comforted by Christ? I look multiple times here, and I'm circling them and boxing them and doing all my little notations. I see suffer, and I see suffering a few times. There are also many words that are the same thing as suffering, like tribulation, trouble, being afflicted, being burdened. There are 10 basic words for suffering in the Greek language, and Paul used five of them here in 2 Corinthians But all of the suffering spoken of here in this section is for the sake of Christ. It's not just a general suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of our own stupidity, our own foolish choices, our own sin. In fact, much of our suffering, we've brought on ourselves by just terrible decisions that don't please the Lord. We can also suffer because we live in a fallen world. We struggle because of the sin that's around us. We, we struggle and, and we suffer because of other people's sins. We live in a fallen world. But this passage is speaking about suffering for righteousness' sake. Pothema is used in verses 5 and 6, and it's the same word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So here, something most of us are not very familiar with, suffering for Jesus, suffering because you're following Jesus, suffering because you refuse to be silent about your faith in him. These are afflictions that are accrued because of godly action. And Paul and his companions were experiencing this suffering. Now, we don't know exactly what trouble it was in Asia because Paul had so many troubles in Asia as he traveled and ministered, but we do know that sufferings abounded. And we know that there were were many, many sufferings for this cause. So when I say embrace suffering for Christ, I don't say it as though I understand it or that I even know that I'll do it. I say embrace suffering for Christ because it is what the scriptures teach. I know that the word says, when I am weak, then I am strong. What is your attitude towards suffering? What's your perspective towards suffering for Christ? Christians are often quite offended when they suffer for the lord. Here in the United States, here in America, I often see this attitude where we feel sorry for ourselves because people don't like us. It's a <laughs> I'm trying I'm working on mercy sad face. She's got this. Choose <laughs> that. <laughs> said, I'm mean. They don't like our songs. They, they say we're not cool. That, that's the American attitude. When they, I think a lot of American Christians expect society to applaud them for their moral behavior. It, it's, 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 and Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So, what is our attitude towards suffering? When people think we're old school, when people think we're backward, when people think that we, we, we just aren't up with the times, that we're not progressive, what is our attitude about that? Do we embrace it and say this is part of living for Jesus? I refuse to be silent. I'm not going to sit here and keep my faith in Jesus to myself. And when people criticize me and when I I look at the headlines and when I look at the attitudes that people have in society towards Christians, am I going to sit here and feel bad for myself? Or am I going to embrace that I'm starting to experience even a little bit of suffering for the name of Jesus and for the cause of Christ? Shouldn't we be embracing suffering for Christ? and saying, this just comes with the territory. We are not suffering because of our own standards, are we? We are partaking in the sufferings of Jesus, not his redemptive suffering, but this world loathes Jesus because he loves them. Have you seen that in a parent-child relationship before, where the parent genuinely loves and shows love to the child, sometimes even a grown-up child. They're loving them, and they're doing the right thing, and the kid hates the parent because they're loving them. They want them to ruin them, right? But they, they hate their love. That's what this world, apart from Christ, is like. They despise God because he has given his life for their sin. And they don't even want want God to talk about their sin or their brokenness. When you and I suffer for righteousness' sake, we should embrace that. If we are truly reflecting the grace of Jesus and people despise us for it, we should say, Lord, this is what my walk with you is about. Now, not embracing the suffering in an obnoxious way listen to this very famous verse from Philippians 3 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection I like that part that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the next part and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death we hear a lot about knowing God and we should and we hear a lot about his resurrection power in us and we should but we don't hear a lot about the fellowship of his sufferings sharing in the sufferings of Christ, that we might partake in his death. Not for our own redemption, that's not what it's talking about, but taking up our cross, losing our lives that we might find our lives. We like to be liked. Being despised is difficult, yet embrace suffering for Christ. That's the suffering that this passage speaks of. Point number four, Receive comfort from Christ. Now how did Paul and Timothy and many others, how did they embrace suffering for Christ? They were able to do that because they had received comfort from Christ. Look at verse five. "For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ." That verse encapsulates what he is saying. There are a lot of sufferings for Christ, but in the same way that our sufferings are many, so is the comfort that comes from Christ. Look at the second half of verse 7. We know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake in the consolation. Now Paul is saying to them, you guys are a have been a critical people, you've been a skeptical people, you've been a divisive people. I won't get too much into 1 Corinthians. And you've had your fair share of troubles, but now you're going to become partakers. You're growing up. You're experiencing suffering for righteousness sake. And you are going to partake of the suffering and of the comfort that comes from God. When we're suffering and God comes and meets us and gives us the peace that we need, that is amazing. That's the reason that we can endure. That's the reason that we can embrace the suffering is because God gives his persecuted people peace in the middle of their tribulation. We haven't experienced that that much at all, but believers around the world have. They know the persecution's coming. They know the struggle is there. But they also know that on the heels of that suffering, there will be comfort from the God of all comfort. Every single bit of real comfort, not just fake comfort, not just fill in the need of the moment comfort, but the everlasting need comes from God. He's the God of all comfort. This passage tells us that. And when we're suffering for righteousness' sake, oh, how we need to hear that and we need to look for that because this is the truth. Warren Wears, we put it this way. Sometimes God delivers us from our trials and sometimes he delivers us in our trials. We're in it, the circumstance doesn't change, but we're in that trial and he gives us the peace, the consolation, the comfort to endure it. Brothers and sisters, this is our future. Our future. Church, the heat is only going to get turned up from here. Are we so focused on, let me try to figure out how to share the gospel in in an unoffensive way. (laughs) The word says that it's a rock of offense. Now, I'm not saying to purposefully be offensive, but you see the culture of the church in the United States. We've tried to figure out, how do I tell people that they need Jesus without making them mad at me. I want them to walk away and think I'm really cool and really current. And re- Why have we started doing that? Because we don't like suffering. We don't like to be looked down on. We don't like people to think that we're kooks. But the truth is that God is calling to unbelievers and he's saying, see your need for me. You're broken. You're needy. You're killing yourself with your, with your own life with your own sin i'll take that sin for you and so we know every week there is more antichrist sentiment sentiment in the united states every week there is more antichrist legislation written and if we stand for jesus and the truths of his good word we will suffer more and more relationally, vocationally, socially, physically, and (gasps) financially. Not my money, God. (laughs) We see the direction that our country is is taking, and and we pray that God would would spare. We pray that he would renew. We pray that he would revive. We, We pray that we wouldn't just keep sliding downward. It's not that we shouldn't ask God to save and to keep, but we also should be seeing that there is more and more persecution on the horizon. There is an alternative to suffering for Christ. There is a way you can escape that suffering. It is to be silent. It is to hide your light under a bushel. It is to keep your faith on the down low. Isn't that the message that that you're getting? Don't talk about him. Don't talk about that. Keep it to yourself. Believing in Jesus isn't meant to be proclaimed. That's not what our culture is about. and you can escape much persecution by just being silent. From Acts 4, verse 18. So they called them and commanded them to not speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. Do you see? Stop teaching people about Jesus. Stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge for we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. They said, I can't be quiet. I won't be quiet. I know who I've seen. I know what I've seen. I know who I've heard. I've heard Jesus. I know that I've seen the risen king. And you judge for yourself whether you think it's right for me to talk or not talk, but I'm gonna speak is getting more and more silent an option for you? It's not for me. I heard a resounding no in my head, but not allowed. It is not an option for me. So I am encouraged to know that with the suffering comes soothing from God himself. Isn't that what the word is telling us? That as we proclaim, and that is the word, as we speak the truth of Jesus, as we give the gospel, as we open up his word, and we speak of the truth that set us free, that there will be suffering for righteousness sake, but there is comfort from God, the God of all comfort. He comes and gives us his perfect peace. Fifth point, comfort others and be comforted in Christ. Comfort others in Christ. So not only does God comfort us, But did you notice that he also uses us as vessels of his comfort? So this just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? At first we're thinking, I can't embrace suffering for Christ. I like to be liked way too much. And then the Lord, by his spirit, shows us that this is the way to follow Jesus. Embrace the suffering for Christ. And then he tells us that in that suffering for him, he will comfort us. And since he's the God of all comfort, it will be all the comfort that we need. He's our sufficiency. And then he says something even more amazing that he's going to use you to comfort somebody else with what they receive from Jesus. Now, you won't be the source of the comfort, but you'll be the vessel of the comfort. I want you to consider right now the camaraderie and the comfort in being persecuted together. And it's not just... The type of camaraderie that's experienced on a sports team where you're like, we're in this together. We're going to lose together or we're going to win together. No, it is the Holy Spirit dwelling in all of us, binding us together. And as we are going through suffering for righteousness' sake, are we not going to be comforting one another? Yes, we are. We're going to need each other. So I see Christians today that think they really don't need the church. The church is like, it's an option. It's, something you do every once in a while to either check the box or get a little bit of inspiration. I'm a little weak. I need some pep in my step, so I'm going to go to church. Scripturally speaking, we are there to comfort each other in tribulation with the comfort that we have received from God. You need me and I need you. That's what the word tells us. And as the persecution increases, we're not going to need each other less. We're going to need each other more. Verse 4 says that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You are able to give the comfort because God has given it to you. The reminder, the encouragement. This is one person ministering to another person. But also, look at what it says in verse 11 you also helping together in prayer. It is us testifying to one another. It is us speaking to one another, the comfort of God. But it is also us praying for one another. Yes, I want to pray for your physical needs. I want to pray for what concerns you circumstantially, your trials. But isn't this a deeper level of prayer, you might even say, that like, Lord, hold up my brother as he loses his job because he refuses to be silent as he's taken from his family because he will not deny you be with my sister as she's separated from her kids because now they've decided that it's abuse to teach them the bible those prayers are powerful and the lord says here that we are to be helping each other in prayer right now you and I do and should all the more pray for the persecuted church. It is so clear in the word of God. Just because we're not experiencing what they are doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. To the contrary, we should pray all the more. Because if the Lord tarries, there will come a day when we're right here in this town praying for each other, this city, this state, saying, we wish we could get together with 10 let alone a hundred, how great would that be? That is what God is preparing us for. Let's not stick our heads in the sands. Let's say, Lord, if this suffering is from you, then carry me through it with your comfort. Help me to embrace the truth that they hate you. Therefore, if they hate me, it comes with the territory. Let me look for that comfort and be that comfort to other people, to receive it from them. Because it really is from you. I do a lot of wow when I read what's going on in the world. I don't know why I'm wowed, because I just keep thinking it, it's just weird upon weird, right? I don't know why I go, man, I can't believe it's this bad, <laughs> because I kind of know it's, it's going to be this bad, right? But instead of, of just saying wow, or worse yet, instead of murmuring and complaining, more of it's like, Lord, Prepare me to be ready. I read of a martyr this week, and, and as he was there imprisoned for the cause of Christ and knew he was going to go to the stake to be burned the very next morning, he shared with his brother in prison that he didn't know if he had the strength. He didn't know if he could do it. He hadn't denied Christ. He insisted upon speaking the word of God. But now that his death was facing him in such a real way, and as he was hearing the screams of other brothers and sisters, people being lit on fire for their faith, he said, I don't know if I can do it. And he, to test himself, there was a candle, and he just held his hand on the candle. "Can Can I take the heat? And he pulled his hand away. You know, I can't do that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt too much, right? God ended up giving him the strength that he needed, and he laid down his life for the cause of Christ. It wasn't his time when he was holding his hand over the little candle in, in the prison. It was his time the next day. God comforted him. Read of the martyrs. Many of them expressed a tremendous consolation, a tremendous peace even in those hours of turmoil where everybody would have thought, you know, they're just falling apart. They weren't. They were, they were holding on to Jesus. Today, if you're lost, maybe you don't even know you're lost, you can believe upon Jesus. And you might say, why would I step into that kind of struggle? Why would I step into that kind of suffering? It's everlasting life. You can either believe the lies of the world and the destruction that they lead to, There's a way that seems right to us. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is destruction. Or you can believe in Jesus as Lord, the resurrected King, and receive life eternal.